Hi, and welcome to the Wealth of Experience podcast. I'm your host, James Gruber. We've got a big lineup of guests for you this week. Our special guest is Andrew Clifford, the CEO and co-CIO for Platinum Asset Management. Andrew co-founded the international fund manager with Kerr Nielsen. He gives us a fantastic overview of global markets and where Platinum is finding opportunity. He especially does a deep dive into the problems in China and why the outlook there isn't as gloomy as investors think. And he identifies potential bargains in that market. Regular guest Peter Warns, the editor of Your Money Weekly, joins us to speak about the recent Commonwealth Bank result and the read-through for banks and the broader economy. Meanwhile, our other regular, Graham Hand, is in to talk about how a 30-year asset performance chart from Vanguard is a pointer to retirement outcomes. Please note that any advice in this podcast is generally nature and it may not be right for you because we've not taken into consideration your personal financial needs. Let's move straight into our first interview with Graham Hand. Graham, it's good to have you back on the podcast. Great to be on Wealth of Experience again, James. Recently, Vanguard released a report showing the performance of major asset classes over the past 30 years. Can you tell us what did the report say and what prompted your interest? Yeah, you know, you get a lot of reports on what the markets have done over a certain number of years, but this really attracted my attention because I've been looking at some demographic information and trying to think about, you know, how long do people live in retirement? And then it sort of coincided, um, the, the, the sort of this number 30 years coincided with the time frame of the Vanguard index chart, which a lot of people in the industry um, use and sort of pin up on the wall. Um, so the, 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 the two, the two um, periods, 30 years for performance, 30 years for living in retirement. I thought the, the coincidence there was, was fascinating and uh, prompted me to write the article in this week's edition of First Links. Indeed, and uh, that report um, shed light on investing plans for retirement. How so? Yeah, so if you look at the top-level results, and I think these are the numbers sort of worth keeping in, in the back of your mind, that over the last 30 years, uh, the Australian share market average percentage return per annum uh, in nominal terms, so not adjusted for inflation, is 9.2%. And US shares is 10%. And so if you, if you had your time again, you know, you put money into your US shares, you get uh, 10%. And clearly an outstanding result over such a long uh, time and driven a lot by the great tech companies of the US, the Apples, the Microsofts, and, you know, the, the, tel the, the tel Telstra's, uh, Tesla, rather. Um, Certainly not Telstra. Yeah, no, that's right. No, <laughs> you, you don't want to get those two mixed up. But, you know, just to show what the impact of compounding has, you would think, oh, you're 10%, 9.2%, pretty much the same. 
Um, but the the amount that ten thousand dollars invested thirty years ago um, is at ten percent is one hundred and seventy six thousand, and at nine point two percent is one hundred and thirty eight thousand. Um, so the you know both of them pretty good results, but it also shows that the the average return on Australian bonds over that time five point five percent, cash four point two percent. So there is uh, generally, you can say over time, there's a cost for being conservative, and to the extent that people can handle the risk of an equity portfolio, then you know it's worth having that a- allocation to equities for the long for the long run. Of course, when you just sort of say ten percent per annum for thirty years, you disguise some of the volatility along the way. We know in the GFC, for example, the market halved. So the the cost of those long term gains is is having to withstand some pretty wild swings. Yeah, it is interesting that people often say be conservative, yet over a long term period, it would seem that being aggressive is 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 more more appropriate. Yeah, it depends on on your time frame and circumstances. And your process, on. yeah. But look, I mentioned I've been looking at demographic. Uh, data and um, the life tables from the Australian Bureau of Statistics because, you know, there's a sort of popular planning argument about being more conservative when you retire, um, 65 years old. And I'd just like to make sure people understand the difference between life expectancy at birth and life expectancy at age 65. So, when you look at the life tables, it will tell you that on the latest data, which is from 2021, um, life expectancy of, a, of an Australian male is 81.3 years, an Australian female 85.4 years. So, you know, you may think, um, okay, well, if I'm retiring at, 80, at 65, um, I'm a male, live till 81, you know, that's 16 years. But that's not the right number to, to look at. Um, the what you have to do when you're 65 is say, what's the life expectancy of a 65-year-old? And a 65-year-old has gone all the years between naught and 65 without dying, okay? Whereas the life expectancy at birth allows for the fact that, that, that some people will um, die when they're younger. So, in thinking about retirement, you need to think about the life expectancy of a 65-year-old at the moment, not life expectancy at birth. Which is? Well, here switching to that particular calculation that the OECD does for all OECD countries. So, at the age of 65, life expectancy for men is 20.3 years and for women is 23 years. But again, you know, you've got to think that's half the story because life expectancy is like the 50th percentile. So, 50% of people will live longer than those, those numbers. And also, if you think about most people go into retirement as a couple, um, you, normally when you're a couple, you plan your income and investments together. And you normally, um, if the first person dies, there's normally money around, then you're worrying about the life expectancy of the, of the survivor. So, what I'm saying, you start to get a whole bunch of numbers you need to add, add up here and make sure you get the right number. It's not the life expectancy at birth. It's the life expectancy at 65. 
Then you you go to the you know the life life expectancy of a man or a woman who's sixty five, um, but then you've got to allow for the fact that fifty percent of people will outlive the average, and then people are part of a couple. And by the time you add up all of these factors, um, you really have to say there's a reasonable chance um, that one member of a couple will live to be ninety five or a hundred, um, and uh, you know you say fifty percent of of um, people who reach the age of 65 will live to be uh, 90, but then you know 30% will live to be 95. Um, one member of the couple um, will live that long. So that's when I say, okay, um, if you're 65 and you're thinking about retirement, 95 is 30 years away. That's what this Vanguard data is. Okay, so I'm sort of. <laughs> I hope it's not too much of a stretch to say. This is what the past was. If you're thinking about your retirement plans, then um, you know you might think 30 years is a bit of a stretch, but it's probably the number you should have in mind. Mm. And getting back to that report, it's, it's about trying to plan for that period and it's about savings but also about other things, right? Yeah. And you know, I've, I've said this on previous uh, podcasts that there's – you know, we tend as an industry, a superannuation industry, and the media, we tend to talk about a lot about superannuation. But I've stressed before that, that it's really a, a complete picture of social security, money outside super, access to home equity, your family situation. You know, there's a full, a full, a full picture on the table here. I was talking to a financial advisor um, and I said to her, what's the first question you ask when you take on a new a new client and, and and she said tell me about your family you know and that was a surprise you know you'd think that the financial advisor would be talking about risk and return and how long well, you know, what are your goals and what are your plans but you know she wanted to say i want to know about you and trying to as part of building the complete picture hmm now vanguard being vanguard it's it's a huge into index funds and and ETFs, and it advocates investing in those. What are the benefits and drawbacks of of doing so? Yeah, and you know th these are obviously big topics, but a, a couple of points. Um, you know, with with index funds, whether they're ETFs or just unlisted managed funds, they're obviously cheaper because you're not paying for a, you know the active fund manager. And Morningstar has done a calculation of the um, Australian market for index ETFs versus active ETFs um, and the pure passive ETFs, so index ETFs, the, the average cost um, that of all the ETFs in Australia is, is 0.24%, so 24 basis points, whereas the active ETFs are 0.65% percent in fact they've also done a calculation of the simple average so that that's just um, no allowance for the fact that some funds are really big and some are really small so it it does allow you to see um, how the, the fees on a sort of broader range of funds and the active ETFs the average the simple average is 0.92 percent 92 basis points and the passive is 44 basis points what that shows is that you shouldn't you shouldn't in your mind say 
ETFs equals cheap, managed funds equals expensive, because it, it, it's really that the index funds equals cheap and active funds equals more expensive. Um, don't associate just ETFs with cheap because some of them are actively managed. So that's the first thing, um, you know, index funds, um, very commonly available, unlisted and listed, uh, have, have significant cost benefits. And, the, you know, the second part of that is, is active funds management worth paying for? And, you know, the, everyone will have the, the personal or professional view on that. You know, if you've got a talented fund manager that you've identified and, you know, you think it's worth paying um, for active fees instead of paying, you know, 0.1% for an index fund, you're paying 1% for an active fund. So that active manager has to do 0.9% better than the market just, as, just, just to equal the index. Uh, you have to decide, is that worth paying for? And, you know, the, the, the data um, is not great on that. You know, the S&P uh, data and the Morningstar data that has looked at active fund manager performance versus index is not flattering. But there are some fund managers who um, have consistently done well, so it's a matter of whether people have the expertise to be able to identify them. With financial planning, particularly in retirement, there's a big difference between logic and emotion. The logic suggests that equities are the way to go, but the emotion would tell you that that's difficult to stomach psychologically. Yeah, it's a massive issue. I mean, I almost put it as uh, the, the, the sort of the thing that, that investors have to come to grips with um, most in their investing because you can unemotionally produce the numbers and say your portfolio should be significantly exposed to equities and over this 20 or 30 year period you'll do better than if you're in cash cash or bonds but you know 50% reduction in your capital when you're living off your savings and you probably don't have the capacity to go back to work in any way, any way shape or form that you did in the past that's a big ask. I, I know in my own situation, you know, if my portfolio literally halved, that, that, you know, that would be very unwelcome, right? So I spread my in investments, even though professionally I know I should have more equity exposure. I set up my portfolio to manage my emotional reaction to my portfolio. And that's the way most people should do it because there's no point saying, I'm all in. I'm going to be 100% equities. I understand the risk. And then, you know, the market falls 20 or 30% and you panic and sell. And then, you know, the market may recover. Um, you've got to set up the portfolio, uh, not only with the sort of numbers that we're talking about here, but with an appreciation of, of how you're going to emotionally react to a major loss. In sum, then, you seem to be saying that you really need to plan for longer than you previously have thought about retirement. That seems to be the the crux of what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's that's fair to say. I mean, if you if you think about the situation of a um, there may be a sixty five year old couple 
who have done well. Um, they 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 head into retirement. They've got some money, and yeah, you know, they might know something about investing. But they go and see a financial planner for the first time, and that's a that's a discovery um, discussion um, about you know a, a whole bunch of things about as we've said, risk and family and whatever. But then, you know, the question of how long should my money last will be on the table. And I'm saying that 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 number, if you're reasonably healthy, that's a 30 year number. You know, think about it in in that in those terms. Don't think about the old days of um, you know, you work until you drop um, or you're in retirement for 10 years. Um, you've got to think about your change of circumstances. I mean, look, if you can keep on doing part-time work, fantastic. Um, you know, if you're happy with um, a lower level of income and leaving all your wealth to your to your children, fantastic. It's everyone's personal decision. But I would advocate, you know, realize you're going to live a while, but realize that you're you know, investments are likely to do somewhere up around what they've done in the past. And if you've got money, go out and spend it. You know, why Why leave it all to your kids? You know, why should they f- fly business class and you're up the back of the plane? I'd like some of that money, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, don't leave it to your kids then, James. <laughs> Thanks very much for your time, Graham. That was great. Yeah, it's great to be on the podcast again, James. Let's now go to our other regular guest, the editor of Morningstar's Your Money Weekly, Peter Warns. Nice to have you back on the show, Peter. Thanks, James. Uh, Always good to be here. Peter, I'd like to talk about the full-year result of Commonwealth Bank and what it tells us about the banking environment and the economy. First, how was the result in your view? Well, pretty good, um, James. Um, Ten point two billion was um, uh, a record for any bank in Australia, um, and it was it was probably a tad below expectations because of um, higher than expected operating expenses, and um, they pushed the provisioning up for bad debts. Overall, it was a very very solid result. Um, you couldn't pick too many holes in it at all. Uh, and um, the market's response to it was quite quite sound, and um, uh, and the outlook um, is is not all that flash, but it's not all that bad. Now, the net interest margin is something that a lot of people focus on, and that's the difference between interest earned on lending and investment assets, and interest incurred on customer deposits and wholesale debt. Now, that was pretty healthy in CBA's case, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, net interest income um, was up 18% uh, to $23 billion, and that represented 85% of total underlying operating income. Um and That's that was big... driven largely by the rates rising, is it? And and being able to, being able to uh, pass that through to through to loans. Well, absolutely, a combination of uh, of you know higher income on interest charged, and 
the um, the interest expense, um, whilst it was very, very elevated as well, um, it, it rose much, much more than, strangely enough, in percentage terms than the interest received because it was from a, such a low base in 2022 when interest rates on deposits were basically zero. And so, uh, but driving the the, uh, the net interest income line was obviously a meaningful increase in interest received because of higher interest rate environment and the and the passing on of the uh, of the reserve banks uh, very very rapid increases through twenty twenty three. You did mention provision for bad debts rose. Was that a matter of kind of them smoothing? those provisions out a bit to smooth earnings out, which all banks really do? Or was it a genuine thing where uh, they do expect bad debts to rise pretty soon? Well, I think in the current environment and with, um, you know, households under a fair bit of pressure, um, there's no doubt that um, arrears will rise and whether the arrears then turn into bad debts is is usually you know what what occurs um, uh, they have boosted the provision in the second half by 600 million which is not a small number and um, and the uh, the total provision for the year was 1.1 billion now they've already got healthy provisions in there before that increase. And so they're just safeguarding the balance sheet um, to to ensure that should there be a, an unexpected spike in bad debts, that they are well provisioned and won't have to dip into capital um, to, um, to um, you know, offset it, if you like. Now, how do you see the outlook for CBA? Well, it's the largest bank in Australia by a comfortable margin, 65% or maybe a little higher than that of their loan book is in the to, to mortgages, um, whether they be owner-occupied or investor. And so they, that's where their bread and butter comes from. Yes, they're increasing their market share in business lending. Um, and and therefore, the outlook is basically attuned and very closely to the economic outlook. Um, if you if you look at what had happened through twenty twenty uh, or financial twenty twenty three, you started the year off uh, with total credit demand at around nine percent. You ended the year with total credit demand um, falling back to 5.5%. It tells you that both housing, um, which again started the year um, at 7.7% growth, uh, finishing the year uh, in June uh, at a number of 4.5. So that's, as I said, don't forget that's the biggest part of their business. And uh, housing uh, credit demand has fallen quite quickly. Um, in addition to that, so has broad money supply. I mean, broad money supply has has been crunched and is back now down to about 4.3% annually year to June. So it tells you that the economy is shrinking and 
shrinking at the household level, probably faster than the business level. And that's where Commonwealth Bank's bread and butter is. And so um, the outlook will be, for 2024 is, is going to be a, a more subdued profitability. It could even pull back from $10.2 billion, but certainly the net interest uh, margin, which at 2.07% uh, was, was uh, quite strong, um, it will come under some pressure um, as interest rates stop increasing and as demand from depositors for a better deal is is uh, still elevated and should should be. Yeah, I, I was going to mention that, that there would be a bit of a lag effect that that people would demand more interest on their deposit and that could flow through to this financial year more so than last. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, last Friday, um, Philip Lowe was having his last hurrah uh, down in Canberra and he indicated and or basically said that, that their, their depositors should seek over 5% for their uh, for their money and if you shop around, you'll get it. Now, that's one thing that Matt Common at CBA would have, would have that he would, you know, run straight to the toilet. Um, <laughs> because because that's not what he wants. Um, he he doesn't. If if you look at the the composition of the net interest margin of Commonwealth Bank of two point oh seven percent, forty basis points or nearly twenty percent of it was due to what they what what they call free free money, if you like. 40, 40 basis points. The previous year, 2022, only 10 basis points came from that. Um, and so, Could you define that a little bit as to what free money is? Well, it's when you pay very, very little for the deposits. Yes. <laughs> That's what free money is, or free, a free hit, if you like. Um, that, and, and I would presume that, you know, as interest rates, one, stop rising and start peeling back a little bit, but not until through basically back into 2024, that, that 40 basis point spread, as I say, um, uh, you know, will come under some pressure. Uh, um, there's little doubt about that. And, uh, but Commonwealth Bank are in a very, very sound position because they, out of all the banks, have probably got over over many many years have got a, a greater trust in their depositor base. They have looked after them relatively well, um, and there's a they, they, so their depositor base is much much stickier, I believe, than um, other banks. Commonwealth Bank. 75% of their funding comes from deposits. No other bank is near that. And that means that the other 25% has come from the wholesale market and a sliver of capital or equity that they put into back, back the loan. So that 75% has come from, you know, a very, very sticky and loyal depositor base. The Commonwealth Bank... Yes. Do you think that and the result is enough to justify the premium valuation placed on CBA by the market? Well, 
the way you value a bank is not necessarily from the asset side of the balance sheet. In other words, don't necessarily just ignore everything else and just look at what's happening to loans because the liability side of the balance sheet is equally as important. In other words, how much money can I get from depositors and cheaply or relatively cheaply, um, that is more important. Uh, in my opinion, what comes first? We've heard the chicken and the egg argument, but what comes first, the deposit or the loan? The banks can't lend any money if they haven't got any deposits. And so um, that that's the situation that the Commonwealth Bank uh, is in. Whether you can justify an 18, 18 PE on FY24 uh, earnings when the outlook for sustainable earnings growth is mid-single digit is very, very moot. I mean, I, I think it, it, that in that basis, it's, it's significantly overvalued relative to the other peers. National Bank is on a forward PE of 12. Is the Commonwealth Bank worth 50% more than the National Bank? The answer, in my opinion, is no. Uh, but the market is the market. CBA had a slide in its earnings report showing that younger customers had started to cut back on spending. And it does seem that a crunch is coming for the consumer discretionary sector, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, um, I suppose the younger cohort have, are in the BNPL by now, pay later. Uh, you know, in front of the uh, front of the queue. Um, I don't think you could if you if you shook a uh, a, a, a sixteen to thirty year old person, get him by the the feet and and, and shook him. You would no cash would fall out of him. It's because it's <laughs> all it's all on the card, and I think that is um, that's where the pain's going to come from. I mean, you can't keep you know. Um, Putting things on 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 the credit, and um, and once the people realise that, um, and it will be the young co- cohort uh, that, um, yeah, uh, discretionary spending, uh, particularly in a hospitality and to a lesser extent leisure, in that in that age group will come back and come back quickly. It won't come back in the sixty five plus area. They are that they're still spending quite freely. They're getting more for their deposits, and and that's what's keeping uh, household spending probably higher than it would normally be if every age cohort was in the same boat. I think that covers it for today. Thanks very much, Peter. Thanks, James. We'll talk next fortnight. Morning Stars Peter Warns there. Let's bring in our special guest, Andrew Clifford, the CEO and co-CIO of Platinum Asset Management. Andrew, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. If you could put your CEO hat on first, I'd like to talk about the funds management industry in Australia. You've had the rise of ETFs, pressure on fees and more competition in the international fund space where Platinum operates. I'm wondering how you currently see the industry and how it may evolve. Yeah, it's it's a great point, James. I mean, 
in, in the time I've been in the industry, you know, 30 years ago, a portfolio probably looked like a bit of, you know, Aussie equities and fixed interests and global equities were a whole brand new thing. And today, I mean, beyond, uh, there's so many options even beyond the ETF space and global equities, private equity, venture cap, infrastructure, you name it. The, portfolio, the, the options for an investor are extraordinary. Uh, and the new investor back on the block today who's been absent for a while, or the big competitor is term deposits, uh, which now actually you know, makes sense again. So uh, it's an extraordinarily competitive space. And so as a, a, a money manager, how do you compete uh, in, in that environment? And you know, what I've always thought is that you've really got two options. Uh, you can gain scale. And when I'm talking about scale, I'm talking about trillions of dollars, tens of trillions, your, your fidelities, Black Rocks, Vanguards, uh, capital group. Um, you can be everything to everyone. Um, and you then have the resources to, you know, have great solutions around technology and w- or whatever it is, uh, fantastic marketing and, and product distributions teams and so on. The alternative is, if you can't be that, and we're certainly not in that league, um, what you need to do, I believe, is to provide a highly differentiated offering to investors. And, you know, for us, that's really encapsulated in our investment process. So without getting too deeply into that at this point, but, you know, where, where our uh, approach to investing leads us is that we end up with portfolios that look very, very different to our peers. Um, so, for example, you know, I, I would say many of our competitors in the global equity space if you look at their top 10 holdings, you're going to find Microsoft, Tesla, Visa Card, um, these types of names, maybe not all of them, but uh, all of them will have some of these. And guess what? If you're mixing that with a passive, uh, uh, you know, an index in your portfolio, you're, you're getting them again. Um, so what you're going to find, maybe we've owned some of those at some point, but, you know, you're going to get very, very different looking portfolios. As a result, we're where we're taking returns out of the market is a very different place to many of our peers. Um, so you've chosen to be niche. I imagine you would have had the opportunity to become potentially everything or all things to all people at various points along the path. I Yes, I think we, we chose, you know, I really do believe in the idea of um, whatever you're doing, you've got to do very well. Um, and I think that, um, you know, at different times, uh, over the, you know, the course of our business, we could have expanded out, uh, we could have done lots of things differently and perhaps been a much bigger manager than we are today. Um, but I think you then start to, you know, risk, you know, just becoming just another also ran. Let's turn our attention to investing. For those unfamiliar with your firm, could you elaborate a bit? You touched on it, but could you elaborate on your investment philosophy and process? Yeah, absolutely. So, look, we have a very um, fundamental belief in where or the way in which markets give investors opportunities, and that is that the best opportunities are found in those places where things are where where companies or industries or countries are out of favour with the crowd at the time. Um, 
And the reason this is an area of great opportunity is that when, when something's gone wrong with a company or it, things aren't traveling well in an industry, um, while the problem that it might be facing is very real, uh, investors as a group will overemphasize the recent problems and therefore tend to sell a stock down far more than it deserves. Uh, and conversely, on the other side, they'll do the opposite. When everything's going well and everyone loves the story, that's when you're at risk that people get too enthusiastic and push prices up too high. And this is really at, at the core of what we, you know, we, we believe opportunities systematically arise. Now, I often see, you know, like obviously we're not just pure contrarians, something that is out of favor, you just go and buy it. You need to do incredibly in-depth work and understand the business very well. But what I would say is that, you know, I'll hear many of my peers talk about they do this great in-depth research, and I believe they do, and I believe we do as well. But what I also absolutely know is the case is that it is impossible today to get a systematic advantage by knowing more than anyone else. The amount of information out there is extraordinary. Or to claim that you are systematically, you understand it better than the market. Um, you know, there's millions of investors across the world in all shapes and sizes and forms, uh, plenty of smart people who are in the know. These are not the things that give you a systematic advantage. But the opportunities where I say investors overemphasize, you know, the recent events, this is actually deeply in human, you know, uh, behavior. It's part of our core psychology. And so understanding the way investors behave uh, is really uh, a very important, um, you know, advantage in, un, you know, in unearthing opportunities. You not only are a value investor, but you do take views on currencies. You short, uh, you take a view somewhat on the macro overlay of things as well. How does that all fit into the picture of, of Platinum's investing? Yeah, so I think, you know, something like uh, shorting is, um, it's really just, you know, another opportunity set that are that is in equity markets. So, um, you know, in recent, you know, in 2022, there were great returns uh, from being short uh, all the speculative stocks that um, took the market, you know, to its highs in 2021. So it's just, again, it's another way of differentiating, you know, what we do from your average uh global equity uh, fund. Um, you know, currencies are something that, again, it's uh, not an area where great additions to returns are made, but on occasion there can be. And again, it's when you get extreme moments where people are incredibly negative about, in that case, normally in a, a country. So, you know, frequently, um, you know, the Japanese yen is one, which is quite a wild currency when people get particularly negative or um, or at the moment interest rate differentials are, are running, creating very extreme moves in currencies. Um, on, on, you know, we do talk about the macro quite a bit um, when we're talking to our clients um, and certainly we do internally as well. But what I would say about the macro is I, I don't think, again, it's one of these areas, I don't think you can systematically predict things. Uh, and even when you do get it right, uh, it doesn't particularly mean it'll help you make money. So a great example of that is that, you know, I think one thing I can absolutely say 
uh, hand on heart is we really did pick the big blowout in inflation that came uh, through 2021. And we also picked the top in it. And we picked the fact that interest rates would go up a lot um, well ahead of time. And yes, we did make some money from that. But if you'd asked me today, would we have a rally, knowing all of that, the rally driven by growth stocks this year, I would have said, well, there's probably some chance of that, but not like what we've seen uh, with the, the likes of NVIDIA and others leading the market this year. So what I really say, the point about being aware of the macro, uh, like it is about being aware. It is about being aware of the risks that are in the environment. Um, but it's not about choosing, um, you know, it's not, we're not choosing stocks because we think China's going to recover. We're buying a Chinese company for reasons that are very particular to that. But knowing the environment that that company is in, operating in in China is important to having that five and 10 year view on the company. Okay, that leads nicely into what your view is on global economies at the moment. Yep. So I think if we start in the US, um, you know, because there are two extreme stories here, there's the US and China. And I think it's really interesting. Uh, we've had this tightening cycle that I think everyone knows is the, uh, in the last 40, 50 years is the, the greatest tightening cycle in terms of the uh, size of the increase uh, in interest rates and the speed at which it's happened. And if you went back to October last year when markets made their lows at that time, Everyone was talking about the inverted yield curve. Uh, they're talking about the recession that was coming, uh, any kind of surveys, formal or informal. You know, people almost universally believe the recession was coming and at least half would have expected a hard landing. Since then, markets have gone up. Uh, the economy seems fine so far, so, so, you know, so far so good. Um, and today, it's almost universally the view that the US has dodged the, the bullet as such, and the economy's fine, and many people expect there'll be no slowdown at all. The thing is, there's, you know, we can look back at history and um, what we know from that, and, you know, things can be different this time, but if we just look at the playbook that history hands to us, is that interest rate impacts have a long delay. And typically, uh, the economists will talk about 18 to 24 months. So from the first interest rate hike in the US, we've only had 16 months. So we're not really seeing the impact yet from those interest rate rises. So there's you know, a, another year and a half in front of us to find out what that impact is going to be on the economy uh, and on company earnings. It sounds and like you're in the camp that there's, there's going to be something happening in the US over, over those months. I think what you... You know, I, I would say history tells us that we should be expecting a pretty difficult economic environment. Now, what does that mean for investing? Does that mean that I'm not buying companies? No, it means that the companies I am buying, I'm buying with an awareness that, you know, my base case should be that it's a pretty difficult uh, environment in, in the US in that time frame. And what we also know is that... Um, you know, the US stock market has typically peaked after the last rate hike, 
which is a very unhelpful rule of thumb because you've got to know whether the last one they just did, that the Fed did, was the last one. Um, but it typically makes sense because the Fed stops hiking rates when they can clearly see softness in the economy and earnings are on their way down. So I, um, I, I think you know investors should plan on the next year or two being pretty difficult in that part of the world. What about China then, where everybody <laughs> seems bearish or a word that's probably worse than bearish? Yeah, <laughs> if there's such a word. Yes. No, no, no. I mean, China is in a, a very serious growth slowdown. Call it a recession if you like. I mean, the economy is still growing, but uh, it is in um, – it's been surprising. So for us, we, we would have said a year ago – We'll get beyond the lockdowns and this economy will bounce back, uh, and it's not done so. Um, you know, at the, the centre of this is, um, you know, the property market. And the important thing here is it's not about the, you know, the latest news of country gardens, debt default or whatever. What we've seen for two years is falling property sales, new apartments. And what follows after that is falling construction activity. So we have construction activity uh, back at the lowest levels we've seen in the best part of 20 years for residential apartments. It's a big part of the economy, and it's, it's very sick at the moment. But And what led to that, though? Well, so if we go back a couple of years ago, the Chinese government was trying to get control of the property market and property prices, and their view was that property was... Uh, for you know, their their slogan has been for the best part of fifty years: properties for living in, not for speculating. And in fact, for fifteen years, they've been trying to control property prices. It's quite in- ironic, you know, given we're having the same discussion in Australia. Um, the Chinese have been having it for a long time and done a lot more things, and ultimately, and sort of over succeeded in crushing um, uh, the property market. Now, what has really happened there is by they really broke the property buyer's confidence in the market uh, with the government policies that were brought in. Uh, a lot of the developers then ended up in financial troubles. Uh, projects weren't getting completed. That sort of re-emphasized people's lack of confidence in the property market. Uh, and so you've had um, you know, a very serious recession in this industry. It's not, however, we don't think it is um, – it's often presented as if there's this great been this great bubble uh, and too much property has been built. I think that's far from the case. Property prices have gone up at rates below nominal GDP growth. Um, we've built probably 240 million new apartments in the country in the last, you know, since 1999. So that's the modern housing stock. I mean, that doesn't even, so we haven't even created a modern housing stock for urban populations yet by a long way. Um, so I think I think the property market can bounce back, but people have to have confidence in it. And certainly, uh, in the China, you know, China news every day, there there are announcements from the government about about the property market trying to you know uh, recreate that confidence that people had. So I believe that will come in good time, uh, but for the moment, that is in a difficult place. You know, that that industry is in a difficult place. But I think it then gets turned into the, you know, the headline story is, you know, China's in trouble, but there's some really great stories happening in China at the moment. So 
Uh, first quarter this year, they just surpassed Japan as the biggest exporter of motor vehicles, which is really quite something. And they've only just started. Uh, a part of that story is because they're the global leader in electric vehicles. Um, and, you know, they will, you know, they sold 6 million electric vehicles in China last year. I think about 2 million were sold in Europe, about one in the US. Um, that market is still booming today. But the country's also uh, the leader in battery technology, um, mater battery materials, and then all of the other exciting investment areas of the day, solar panels, 80% uh, of them made in China. The supply chain uh, is very much China-centric. Wind power, same thing, 60% of wind turbines made in China. There's a dynamic private economy, private market economy here in China that is still doing what it's been doing for the last 25, 30 years. But we're all focused over here looking at um, this sort of disaster that's unfolded in residential property development. There are a lot of people calling for Xi Jinping to, to do more, to stimulate the economy. Why do you think he's held back thus far? So I think, you know, trying to read, I think anyone who thinks they know is probably kidding themselves, but I'd observe this, that after, in, in 2008, 2009, the Chinese had one of the greatest, you know, fiscal stimulus packages of all time. Um, and within a couple of years of that, they saw that as a great mistake uh, and pulled back on it very uh, significantly. And, and what they saw was a lot of money went into projects that where money was just wasted, steel plants were built that shouldn't have been built, and lots of industry built too much capacity. And so they're very wary of that type of policy approach. I think in the West also, we are so used to, you know, the economy is not looking great. We expect our governments to do something about it. What, what it's not clear to me is what would have happened if the governments did nothing? Because, you know, market systems are, a, a, they're a sort of a natural phenomenon, if you like, and they do self-repair. And I think um, probably in the, the West, we are far too inclined to jump in and have governments do something. There are certain circumstances where governments have to. When you have a, a bank failing, uh, like a Silicon Valley bank, you know, I think if you let that go, you can create serious problems in the economy. But just the fact that the economy is sluggish and not you know, performing as you'd like, I, I don't particularly believe that that is a reason that it will not get better on its own. Um, and I do think that they're prepared because they do want to play the longer game and they know money is... When you do stimulate like that, like you look at what happened in the pandemic, um, I think there'll be a lot of pro a big price to be paid in uh, in many countries where huge amounts of money were spent that ultimately weren't needed to be spent. Um, you know that well that is the cause of the inflation we we've had in 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 the developed world. So I think I, I think it's just a nuanced, it's just a different view is my best guess. That's not to say I think they will. They know they. They've indicated clearly they want to see uh, the property market revitalise, but they're not throwing you know huge resources. They're just trying to unwind a lot of the restrictions that they've had in place. Let's uh, go to those areas in China that you see say are opportunities. So what kind of stocks are we talking about that you've invested in that are 
that are taking advantage of those opportunities. Yep. So I'll just say like the opportunity in China is there, there's two types of opportunity in China at the moment. The, the market itself is just deeply out of favour. We've talked about the economic reasons. There's also the political ones, uh, the sort of political tensions that cause a lot of discomfort. So China itself, I think many, many companies are, are, are very attractively valued. Then if you really want to go to the heart of the big opportunity, it is to go into that property market or things that are close wow, brave. To, that are around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's start with the, some of the easiest stories. So um, we own a company called ZTO Express. It's like FedEx or UPS. It delivers uh, e-commerce parcels. And, you know, um, in seven or eight years of its existence, might be a little bit longer than that now, it's grown to be bigger than you know, the entire parcel delivery market in the US. Uh, tens of billions of parcels delivered every year. Um, it's been a fiercely competitive area. Uh, everyone losing money except ZTO. Um, some new regulations around uh, not subsidising loss-making operations has meant that uh, companies have had to put their prices up. So, you know, ZTO is growing volumes. At, you know, historically, they've been at 30 or 40%. The market's a little bit more mature now. Let's call it 20% with some price increases. I mean, this is a company that can readily grow in the 20% range for, for years to come, we believe. Um, there's still only a small, you know, the top five players have 60% of the market. Uh, consolidation is absolutely possible. And you're buying a company like that on 15 times earnings. So I think ex- in, in really, really exciting opportunity that is given to us because people just don't want to go near China. Um, another one would be CATL. CATL uh, is the world's leading battery maker, EV battery maker. Um, so, you know, this is a company that's seen its sales are up sixfold in two or three years, um, highly profitable, unlike their Korean and Japanese counterparts. Um, Clearly a very big bias towards Chinese-made EVs, but they're basically, I think, all the foreign uh, OEMs, you know, uh, use them as well as the, uh, everyone essentially except BYD as a local player, and I think BMW, use their batteries. Um, one of the interesting things is that, you know, they're focused on uh, a battery chemistry, uh, LFP, uh, lithium phosphate iron, if I'm getting that, iron phosphate. Um, uh, as opposed to NMC, which is what the nickel, magnesium, uh, cobalt, that is the uh, typical battery chemistry that everyone else has been using. And what it's turned out is this is a less energy-dense battery, um, but it's much cheaper. So less energy-dense means that for the amount of battery space you're taking up or weight, you'll get less range on your vehicle, but they've significantly reduced that. So they're also in NMC. Uh, they're also in sodium ion batteries, which are going to be great for grid storage. Uh, this is a company that has really come from nowhere to dominate this industry. And again, because uh, people are wary um, of what role they'll play outside of China. So for example, Ford uh, signed a, a technology transfer agree with, agreement with uh, CATL to use their batteries uh, in their new plant in the US. Whether that ever happens is another thing. Um, so people are a bit wa- wary because of the politics, but they have a huge market at home. 
a huge market in grid storage, particularly even if it's only in the developing world and not uh, in 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 the entire world. Uh, and again, a, a sort of low tw- tw- twenty multiple of earnings for a company like that. Mm. Um, so there, the interesting opportunities. I would say property developers. We have two of them. Um, you know, one of them, China Resources Land. Uh, it is the premium developer. Doesn't have much debt. Um, has continued to operate throughout this very difficult period. What they've always done is retain the shopping centres underneath their developments. So you're basically getting a Westfields uh, property portfolio, like property portfolio, um, and you know you're buying it on a very low multiple of earnings. They've been a solid operator for a long time, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, and interestingly, it's a stock that over the last two years, while the property market has fallen apart, it's it's fluctuated up and down, but has not really you, you know fallen too too badly. Um, so, I think you know there are there are opportunities to play there as well. Turning to the rest of the world in terms of stocks, um, you're pretty underweight. The US. Um, uh, how do you view uh, the Europe European stocks at the moment? Yeah, it's it's really it's a really I find the the world has changed a lot, so I tend not to really look at our portfolio much along the lines of U.S., Europe, China. At the moment, I do talk about the Chinese exposure is very much about the domestic Chinese economy, so that is a country story. But when you look at opportunities across markets, whether it's Europe or the US or Australia for that matter, you know what, what I see is that it's the same types of stocks that have got very expensive and popular and the same types of stocks that are out of favour. So it really doesn't matter whether we're talking about Europe or the US. And, and so many of the companies that we're invested in today are multinationals. So for example, um, we have uh, in Europe uh, an investment in Infineon, which is a semiconductor company. Uh, they make power semiconductors, critical for um, all things electric, so electric vehicles, charging stations, solar energy. Um, you know, it is a significant beneficiary of spending in this area. Uh, and, and this is a company that is uh, trading at a very attractive multiple of earnings. You know, it, it's a probably a 10% grower for a long period of time, and uh, today would probably be about 12, 13 times earnings. Or I can go to the US and talk about microchip, which is a, another semiconductor, very different uh, microcontroller units, not so much a play on uh, EVs, but it is a play on increasing electric density of everything we do because you need more and more microcontroller units. Um, you know, its, ve- it's, it's components are found in any Thing where you've you know from your microwave to a toy to cars and, and so on, but again, very like Infineon, high quality business grows at similar rates, very profitable, similar sort of valuation. What's the market saying about these two companies? Well, they've got a little bit of cyclicality in them, and we're scared of a recession. We're not touching them. But at the other end of the spectrum, you know, you go to the 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 growth the type stocks, and in Europe, that tends to be perhaps your luxury goods, and they trade at very high multiples earnings. Or, of course, in the US, it'll be more your tech stocks and so on. Mm. So while, uh, you know, I'm not answering your question about Europe, you know, Europe is um, 
in a way, we you know Germany is struggling. Um, you know the economic data is far less convincing than the U.S. But equity markets are behaving even more boldly than the U.S. Uh, and inflation is less likely to have been dealt with there. So uh, it's it's a sort of a echo of the U.S. is the way I see Europe. But stock opportunities are happening at a completely different level than that geographic one. It's funny at this time where people are down on China and, and Europe, and yet uh, one area that seems to have attracted interest is is Japan, of all things. <laughs> it's funny how, how things like that turn. Uh, you've been long-time investors in Japan. Um, do you see the opportunity that others see there now? I, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, look, it's, it's been a, a great year for Japan, and whether it that continues right at the moment, I'm not entirely sure, but the next three to five years, I think there's a huge opportunity. But it is definitely not a Japan economy story. It's, um, it's quite particular in that what we've seen in Japan over the last decade is the government has continued to make changes around uh, the rules around corporate governance. Uh, let me put it, there's lots of little things we can talk about, but that's the general story. And uh, what that has meant is that minority uh, investors in Japanese companies have got far more ability to influence the outcomes um, in Japanese corporates. Uh, so besides these rules, there's, and there's also the stick part of it where there's a whole uh, raft of um, sort of shame lists and whatever for companies who don't get their share prices up. Right. So, so what, what this is meaning is that we as an investor can go and talk to Japanese companies about what we believe they need to change, um, and they're actually listening. Now, are they taking action? Some are, some aren't. But the, the big problem in the Japanese corporate sector is that you know, companies have accumulated excess cash and real estate, excess people, they often just go into a business to keep their people employed, even though it makes no sense. So they're deploying our capital at very low returns on capital. Yeah, depressed um, ROEs for a long yeah, time, time, didn't it? Yeah. So there's now um, the ability, you know, and we are seeing this, companies are having, or outside shareholders are changing boards, uh, voting out families, um, and, you know, getting independent directors in there and having success with you know, fundamental things like dividends, stock buybacks, uh, rationalization of business lines and so on. And it's very, very early days here. Uh, but we do believe that there's a big opportunity uh, for investors uh, in Japan because it is, you know, there is just so many of these companies that are trading um, at very low valuations with excess uh, assets that, you know, really, and 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 not even... I should say that the more powerful thing will even be, you know, many companies who have strong positions in their businesses but simply don't exercise pricing power, you know, just part of that Japanese corporate club that, you know, we all sort of look after each other uh, rather than really try and do the best thing by our shareholders. Hmm. Well, I think that probably covers it. I, I think that's a very nice sweep of the, the globe that you've given us. And thanks very much for your time, Andrew. No, thanks for the opportunity.
That was Platinum Asset Management CEO Andrew Clifford. And that's a wrap for this week's podcast. Feel free to leave any comments or feedback you may have on the podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed today, check out morningstar.com.au and our associated first links and Your Money Weekly newsletters. We'll be back with another episode of Wealth of Experience in a fortnight. Bye for now and happy investing.